This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 609, and we're going to have Dr. Jay Portnoy joining us. He's a uh, allergist and uh leader of one of the group sections at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID and then a good bit on mold health effects. So we'll be right back after we thank our sponsors. We couldn't do the show without our sponsors. And our newest sponsor is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope, the future of IAQ assessment, unlimited sampling with instant results at instascope.co. Association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at restorationindustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com, Particles Plus, at ParticlesPlus.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to IQ Radio. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, December 11, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ trivia question. What is the origin of the term pediatrics? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Dr. Jay Portnoy is an allergist in the section of allergy, asthma, and immunology at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. He has published numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals, was on the Joint Task Force for Practice Parameters, and served as the president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. He lives in Overland Park, Kansas, with his wife and two cats, and fortunately, no one has a cat allergy. Good day, Dr. Portnoy. Great to have you back. Great, thanks. Well, it's glad I'm glad to be back. I think it's, it's been, been quite a while since I've been on. Too long, nine yeah. years. Um, it's just I, when I saw that, I was disappointed in myself that we hadn't gotten you back sooner. So, let's talk a little bit about COVID before we go into <clears throat> more health effects. Um, you you work at a children's hospital in Kansas City, and my understanding, and I think most people are the understanding that um, COVID affects children differently than it does adult. Can you give us us, um, your perspective? Is that true? And and, uh, how so? Well, so children tend to 
get COVID, but they tend to have a much milder uh, condition of it. So they tend to be more spreaders than actual uh, people who get sick from it. And so as a result, they're not in the hospital as much. So our hospital doesn't have a lot of COVID patients, even though a lot of our children have tested positive for it. The problem is they live with their parents and the parents um, tend to get more severe disease. If you looked at the uh, FDA advisory panel yesterday, uh, one of the representatives from the CDC went through all of the statistics and it really affects people 65 and older, particularly they're three to four times more likely to be hospitalized and even to die from it than people who are younger. Children are much less uh, likely to have that problem. As a result, we've made our hospital available to other hospitals to offload any of their younger patients to our hospital so that they can take care of the COVID patients because the other hospitals in the Kansas City area are completely full. The ICUs are full. Uh, They're bursting at the seams. Our hospital isn't quite full, so we're willing to take on any of the excess patients that they uh, they, uh, can't handle so that they have room for the COVID patients. Very interesting. A part of the news that, that came out yesterday was that there was some concern about 16 and 17 year olds and whether or not there had been enough, I guess, testing in that age group to include them in the vaccination. And that led, led me to think, well, what about children younger than that? You know, you're, you're 15 down to your infants. Are they not included and never will be included in this vaccination program? They will eventually. The the problem is that the FDA tends to do things in stages. So they usually study uh, new drugs, new vaccines, and so on. And people 18 and older, that's usually the cutoff. And then people 12 to 18 are considered to be adolescents. And then 6 to 12 is children. And then less than 6 is preschoolers. Uh, They're the last ones to be studied. So they usually study the adults first because they're considered to be the most robust. They're uh, less likely to have harmful uh, effects from new medications or vaccines than the very young people. Uh, in this case, um, with COVID-19, they studied it down to 16. I think part of that was because that's the European age group rather than the American age group, which is 18. And so they didn't tend to have as many people between 16 and 18 in the study as in the older groups. That, that's partly a fa- function of the cost types of places that did the did the research. They tended to be adult facilities where 16-year-olds didn't go. Uh, There was no evidence that 16-year-olds had a problem with the vaccine. They seemed to respond perfectly well to it. Um, And um, so I don't have any concern about 16-year-olds getting it, but some of the um, people on the FDA advisory panel wanted to voice that concern. I think if their vote had derailed it and it wouldn't get approved, they probably wouldn't have voted that way. But they voted that way just to send a message to the FDA that they did want them to pay attention to how it works in younger people. I'm glad you expanded on that because I, one of the questions I had was, you know, if it's not good for 16, if four people voted against it, was that did that mean they thought there were problems? It sounds like no, they just thought there was a need for more research in that age group. Yeah, and the urgency for vaccination in much younger people isn't as great because they tend not to get as sick. But, but on the other hand, it's very important to get them vaccinated so they don't spread it to the adults. Sure. Um, the problem is we don't know if vaccination is gonna prevent uh, asymptomatic carrier state. So you might not get the disease, but you might still be infected with it and transmit it. 
the data that they showed yesterday, though, suggested that's probably not what's going to be the case. Probably in January or February, they'll have more information about that to make definitive statements. But it looks like it probably is not going to be uh, something that would transmit uh, asymptomatic people if you've had the vaccine. Okay. Cliff, did you have a, a question? Paul? I, I did, actually, doctor. Um, a good friend of ours, a family friend, is is a nurse here in, in Pittsburgh. And, and one of the things that she's noticed at her hospital with younger people is they're coming down with two things at the same time, COVID and something else, COVID and flu or COVID and, and something else. And uh, it's it's been really tough on, on some of these kids. I'm wondering if you could comment on that and whether you're running into the same thing in Kansas City. And that's pretty much the norm when Kids come to the emergency room with an asthma attack, for example. It's usually mm -hmm. triggered by a cold. They do a viral panel where they test for a whole bunch of viruses. And it's not uncommon to test positive for two viruses. And there's no reason why if you, they're, out, they're out there, you can get exposed to it. If you get two, that's probably going to cause more of a problem than if you just have one. <clears throat> so I'm not surprised that that's uh, something that they found. You know, when we talked earlier in the week, you mentioned that you'd been doing a lot of reading about historic, historical epidemics and pandemics, the flu in 1918. Yeah. What have you learned that helps us better understand today's situation? I learned that what goes around comes around. Basically, mm -hmm. history always repeats itself. 1918 pandemic was called the Spanish flu. Um, started in Fort Riley, Kansas, of all places. It was uh, the, the military base there. The soldiers got it. It was a fairly mild disease. Uh, they then got drafted to go to World War One. They, they called it the Great War back then. They didn't know there was going to be a World War Two, so they didn't give it a number. Um, mm -hmm. They went over to Europe, and as they got to Europe, they started to infect the troops from the other countries. So the English, the British troops got infected and then they started having problems. And then, and, um, then the French troops got infected and eventually the German troops got infected too. And as the infection spread, it mutated and became more lethal. Uh, so it was a much more dangerous virus over in, in Europe. Uh, and it led to the end of World War I, basically. It was an entrenched war. The war wasn't ending. It was just sitting there in stalemate. And then everybody got sick. All the soldiers were so sick, they couldn't keep fighting the war. And that's what led to the armistice, where they couldn't, where they had to end the war. Pandemic ended World War I. It's, it's really fascinating. When the yeah, soldiers came back to the United States, uh, they spread the virus to all of the cities that they were discharged to. They went back to their local communities, and there were a tremendous amount of, uh, of disagreement about this. Uh, it, it was first of all, it was illegal to cover the the influenza vaccine, uh, pandemic. If you look at newspapers from 1918, 1919, they don't mention it at all because they wanted to keep it a secret. They didn't want the enemy troops to know that our troops were suffering from this virus. And the Germans, the other side did the same thing. So there was no coverage of it. It was a pandemic that didn't exist, except in Spain, because Spain was not a participant in World War I. Uh, so they didn't have any problem covering it. So they, their newspapers had it all over. And that's why we call it the Spanish flu. It's, it didn't have an, anything to do with Spain. They're just the only ones that covered it. Uh, there were problems. The people in the United States did not want to wear masks. There were mask protests. People didn't want to distance themselves. They were having the same kind of discussion and battles then that, that we were having now. And there were different waves. The second wave, the third wave was the worst wave. It happened during the winter months in, in 1919. Uh, and um, it was very similar to what's going on now. And then eventually um, the influenza burned itself out 
but it continued to pop up periodically through 1957. So it didn't actually go extinct. It just had infected enough people that periodically it would just infect the new ones that hadn't already been infected. 57, it was knocked out by H1N3, um, which was a swine flu back, back in 57. Yeah, another pandemic. <clears throat> so absolutely fascinating. Things always really repeat themselves. Very yeah. interesting. What about the H1N1? That was, I guess that was maybe 12 years ago now. Um, seems like it was a big concern at first, but then it kind of burned itself out. Can you compare what happened with that and what happened? what's happening now with the COVID? H1N1 affected kids, did not affect adults partly because adults who had lived through the pandemic of 57 had partial immunity to it. So they tended to be resistant. It was a not a totally novel infection, but the younger people did not have any immunity to H1N1. So it became a pandemic. Our hospital was filled to the brim, unlike this time when it's mostly adults. Back then it was, it was kids. The death rate though wasn't that high. It was like 0.1%. It was similar to annual flu that we get today. It just that so many people had it that it was a big deal. Uh, and it did not stop during the summertime, which is very unusual for influenza. It started in the spring, lasted through the summer into the fall. We eventually got a vaccine in late fall. And uh, at that point, I had a lot of patients who refused to take it, which which is crazy, because why would you not want to get a vaccine that would prevent your child from getting sick? But um, we had, there was the same kind of stuff going on then that we have today. That's interesting. Now, I've got a text question. 1918, how did St. Louis react to the flu? I, maybe, I assume this is a pretty sharp character you're asking, so I assume there was something there. Yeah, different cities had different responses. Some of them um, responded by shutting down and distancing and wearing masks, and they tended to have much milder situations. Other cities did not do that. They, uh, people refused to wear masks. They didn't. They they continued to go to restaurants and and bars and and things like that. So, uh, and those cities tended to do much worse. They had higher death rates. Um, people were just much worse off. One interesting thing about the pandemic of 18, though, is that it was very fast. You could have symptoms in the morning, and by the end of the evening, you could be dead. It really progressed that rapidly. So it was very obvious. People were dropping in the streets. Unlike COVID-19, it tends to have a longer incubation time. So you don't see people dropping in the streets. You're not. It's not like in Monty Python where people are dead on the streets and they're putting them into wagons and carting them off. Uh, COVID-19, the deaths occur in the hospital, so you don't see it. And I think that's part of why people tend to deny it. I see. I, and I think he answered his own question to some degree that Saint, there was a big parade in St. Louis. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait, Philly had the big parade and St. Louis. Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. I, I, before we move on and talk a little bit about mold health effects, um, Cliff, is there anything you wanted to ask Dr. Portnoy on, on covid no, no, I'm good, thanks. I, I got one more on COVID for you. I assume you're a proponent of vaccines, but I'm curious, someone in your position, where are you in line for getting this vaccine? When do you think you'll see it? Well, the, the first, the people on the front lines are the ones, the hospitalists, the intensivists, the people in the emergency room, the EMT people and the nurses, for sure. They're, they're the first ones who are going to get it. Then they want to vaccinate people in uh, like old uh, like in nursing homes and 
and, and the staff of the nursing homes in particular, because those people uh, are uh, more susceptible to, to dying and having bad outcomes from it. Uh, I'm a healthcare worker. I'm over 65, but I'm not in the front lines. I'm an allergist. I work in an outpatient clinic. So my exposure to COVID really isn't that high. I suspect that I'll probably be a little bit further behind. Um, but as soon as it's available, I'm going to line up for it. It's 95% effective. Um, which is amazing. The, the annual influenza vaccine is maybe 60% effective, and that's considered a good thing to mm -hmm. get. And this is 95. That's that's better than the drug companies even imagined it could possibly be. Uh, keep in mind, this is the first time a coronavirus vaccine has ever been developed. Um, they've never had one before. We've had vaccines to other types of viruses, but this is the first one. It's a completely different technology than any other vaccine. Uh, Coronavirus is a messenger RNA. It's an RNA virus. It's different than other viruses. Uh, and the vaccine is a messenger RNA vaccine. So they're using a different technology than has ever been used before. It's been well studied. They started to develop it during the SARS epidemic and the MERS epidemic. So, so these other epidemics got them started to work on the process. So it's not something they just started working on a year ago. Um, but um, they didn't go all the way to developing the vaccine because those viruses went extinct and there was just they lost interest in it. Uh, now they've fulfilled the technology. And the nice thing about this technology is that RNA uh, vaccines can be developed very quickly. Um, so if a new virus comes out, and I'm sure in the next 10 years, another one's going to emerge, we may have another pandemic, we may not, I, I don't know, but they're coming faster and faster and they're stronger and stronger viruses. But this new technology permits production of highly effective vaccines very quickly. And so I think that's that's an advantage. That's that's one of the, the great things about this, uh, this new product. I, I plan to get in line and stick my arm out as soon as possible. And because I read somewhere that because it's based on, you know, it's an RNA uh, vaccine and, and they're, they're thinking that the body will kind of quickly uh, forget about it, or I, I'm not sure what the terminology was. And then that um, it won't affect your DNA, but it'll still help give you protection from the virus. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the, Another RNA virus is HIV, AIDS, um, but it has reverse transcriptase. So it takes the RNA and converts it into DNA, and then the DNA incorporates into your genome, and that's why it's such a deadly virus and hard to get rid of. This messenger RNA vaccine does not have reverse transcriptase, so it cannot reconvert itself back into DNA and insert into your genome. There's no risk of you getting infected from it. Um, the difference between this and protein-based vaccines, usually you take a virus, you chop it up, take the proteins and you vaccinate and, and the immune system sees those proteins and responds to it. This one is an RNA vaccine. The RNA goes into the cells, the cells produce the protein, but the protein is produced by the cells, which then sends a signal to the immune system to respond more vigorously. So unlike uh, other vaccines, this one has a really strong response, both T cell and B cell. So it's engineered to be a much more effective vaccine than if you even had natural exposure to COVID-19. Even if you've had the, the virus, your immune response is not going to be as good as if you had the vaccine. Very interesting. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the last time you were on nine years ago, unfortunately. Uh, during that show, we talked about uh, a bunch of topics, and one of them was the 
incidences of hemosiderosis in children in Cleveland. So the the bleeding lungs of kids in Cleveland, some of them died from that. And at that time, you said you had encountered one case in a child. Have you seen or heard of any other cases since then? It's been nine years. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it, it that, that that really hasn't turned out to be something that is uh, that we look for. It's not an epidemic. We're not seeing a lot of that. It seems to be sporadic. So I think that was something that sparked an interest in looking into environmental exposures as a cause of disease. But I'm not sure that hemosiderosis itself is something that would be a good signal to look for in terms of uh, bad environments. Um, but there has been a lot of new research done in the last nine years. As, as you know, it's been that, that long since we last talked. And I, was, uh, I sent to you a document uh, earlier today from the NHLBI uh, that I think is very interesting. This is the National Heart, Blood, and, Blood and Lung Institute. It's a, an institute of the National Institute of Health. And every so often they update their guidelines for the diagnosis and management of asthma, which is a serious uh, respiratory disease that affects children and adults. It affects about between 6 and 12% of the population, depending on what groups of people you look at. And it's a respiratory disease that's triggered in part by environmental exposure. And so this new guideline that was just published in December um, uh, dealt with environmental exposures and looked at the evidence behind their effectiveness. So can they be used as a treatment for pediatric and adult asthma? Uh, and they looked specifically at a variety of interventions, including acaricides, the use of uh, impermeable pillows and mattress covers, carpet removal, integrated pest management, air filtration, HEPA vacuum cleaners, cleaning products, mold mitigation, and pet removal. And among other things, they looked at all of those things, looked at the literature, and then made specific recommendations about what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's interesting to go through that because uh, this evidence is now going to be used as a justification for health plans to pay for these interventions and also for these inspections. And I think we're going to see a lot more support for that kind of approach now uh, that these guidelines have been produced than, than we had before. And this is brand new, 2020. So this has probably got less attention than it would have because of the, you know, the pandemic and everything. Uh, how long has it been between updates here? Last update was 2007, which is embarrassing. Uh, it's been 13 years. It, the NIH just doesn't um, work very fast. Um, so as a result, as a, as a medical practitioner, I treat kids who have asthma. I go by the GINA guidelines. It's the Global Initiative for Asthma. It's an international set of guidelines. They're updated annually. They tend to focus more on medical management, although they have made some statements about environment and and about allergy shots and the management of allergic diseases. But this guideline um, is considered authoritative in the United States, but of course, course because it's a United States product. So that's why it's going to get attention of our healthcare uh, resources here. Um, And they made some interesting comments. Uh, For example, acaricides, you know, the the stuff that you broom on your carpet to get rid of dust mites doesn't make any difference. There's no evidence that it works. And we knew that because the dust mites see the acaricide coming and they crawl to the bottom of the carpet where the acaricide doesn't get to. When it's swept away, then they come back out. So it doesn't work. On the other hand, let me just, I want to clarify, it doesn't work with respect to 
getting rid of the dust mites. So obviously get, the kids are still going to have, you know, allergic. Yeah, and, uh, it doesn't so, get rid of the dust mites enough to help their asthma. I see. You can't use it to treat asthma. Um, oh, one other rule that they made is that if you have no allergies, if you're not allergic to these things, then exposure to these things, unless they're irritants, is probably not causing harm. So there's no reason to get rid of them. You don't have to get rid of your pets if you're not allergic to the pets. So only get rid of things that you're allergic to. So allergy testing is useful. But if you are allergic, then some interventions really do help. For example, the impermeable pillows and mattress covers, uh, there is pretty good evidence that they uh, can be used as part of a strategy for reducing exposure and improving asthma. So they do help. Integrated pest management is probably one of the most effective things for pest control, cockroaches and, and rodents. Uh, air filtration, on the other hand, doesn't really seem to do much. And part of that is because a lot of these allergens are only intermittently airborne, so the filters aren't removing them and, until they are airborne, so it's an issue. Uh, and so vacuum cleaning with high-efficiency vacuum cleaners does work um, because you're stirring it up and, and filtering it out that way. Uh, cleaning products, uh, there's really not much evidence for that, but there is evidence for mold mitigation, reducing humidity, getting rid of molds, uh, using chemicals to remove molds, and so on. And pet removal is something I think we probably should spend a minute talking about a new approach to treating cat allergy um, that I think you might find very interesting. Let's do that now. About a year ago, I was invited to Geneva, uh, Switzerland, to uh, have see a presentation of a new product that Purina Corporation came out with. Uh, I own no stock in Purina or Nestle, the parent company, although I do like their chocolate. Um, <laughs> and they gave us chocolate in, in Switzerland. Um, they've come up with a way of treating their food, this, this cat food, with, the, with a substance that uh, gets rid of the cat allergen. So if you feed it to your cat, your cat no longer produces allergens that, you can, that can cause harm. Wow, that's so fascinating. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, How in the cats, world? Say what? It doesn't seem to make logical sense that you can do that, but I guess there's some mechanism there that it doesn't. You know, here's, here's how they do it. Um, cats make a major allergen called Feldy-1. Uh, it's, it's in their sebaceous glands. They secrete it out onto their fur. They lick themselves. They spread it. It spreads all over your house, causes significant allergy symptoms in people who have cat allergy. I mentioned it the, earlier. We have two cats in our house, but none of us are allergic to cats. But if we were, um, it would, we would have to get rid of them or do something drastic in order to uh, treat our cat allergies. So what they did was they took Feldy-1, this major cat allergen, and they immunized chickens uh, hens, and the hens then produced a fowl, a, a, a hen, a bird antibody called IgY. And when birds make an antibody, they produce it and it goes into their eggs. And so the eggs have very high concentration antibody against Feldy-1. And they take the eggs that these hens laid and they put it into the cat food. So when the cat eats the food, the antibody neutralizes the Feldy-1 cat allergen, and then the cat allergen doesn't cause any problem. I haven't seen that. You would think they'd be advertising that. I haven't seen much. Do you know why? Why well, I don't. They're not very good at advertising it. But okay. I have seen it at uh, like uh, PetSmart. They have it. It's called Free and Clear or so, something like that. Interesting. One other. You know, you talked about using HEPA vacuums for dust mites, and 
I'm mm-hmm. wondering, are there any other interventions that, you know, we, we recommend that people wash their sheets and so on in hot water? Um, does that seem to help? Uh, what other things seem to help? I think it's a bigger problem than people realize this whole dust mite allergen. Yeah. So dust mites, as you know, are these little acarids. They're in, little insects you know, related to spiders, I, I guess, uh, they're, but they're very small. And um, they're mainly made out of water and they produce um, uh, little fecal pellets. They're about uh, five microns in size. Uh, The fecal pellets are pretty heavy, so they tend to settle out and they're in the carpeting. And when they stir up, um, then you inhale them and they cause significant allergy. Dust mites produce lots of allergies in their their poop. That's what you're breathing. Um, So uh, strategies to get rid of dust mites include the impermeable pillows and mattress covers that keeps the mites basically from getting into the mattresses. If you can keep them on the outside surface, you can wash them off and then they can't get inside where all of their food is located. Mites eat skin cells and, and mold and, and other debris that is inside of mattresses. So that, that's, that's an effective strategy. Um, the acricide in the carpet doesn't work because it just doesn't get to where the dust mites are. Um, the other approach that's commonly used is uh, dehumidification because these dust mites are made out of water. And if the air is really dry, they shrivel up and then they don't survive very well. So you've got to keep the humidity down below 30%, uh, ideally 25% or so before the dust mites really go dormant and stop reproducing. Uh, in terms of the, the air filtration, the, the problem with that is that the pellets tend to be on the ground. They're not in the air because they're heavy. They rain out. And it's only when you sit down on the upholstered furniture or you walk across the carpet that you stir it up, it gets airborne. Then the air filter can remove it, but then it settles down again and then the air filter can't remove it anymore. And so that's why the air filtration units are not all that effective for removing dust mites. You know, I always, I'm glad you mentioned that the dust mites can't get down through the covering. What about the pellets and the, the broken up fecal pellets? Does the, that, does the um, impermeable sheets help protect from the exposure that way as well? It seems to. It's got to be very tightly woven. Uh, it can't be plastic because then you sweat and it's who wants to sleep on plastic, but a tightly woven material that has a, a weave that's tighter than the size of the pellets can be very effective in preventing the dust mites and their fecal pellets from, from getting through. So that has been shown to be effective. In terms of laundry, you, you med, mentioned the bedding and the hot water and all of that. The, yes. the idea behind that was you would take the bedding and put it in a hot water and that would scald the dust mites and kill them. Uh, it turns out you don't really need to scald them. You can just drown them. Um, so hot, warm water is perfectly fine at getting rid of dust mites. It doesn't need to be hot. And the reason that was a controversy was uh, families were setting the temperature of their water heater high enough to kill dust mites, and then kids were getting scalded because if they turn the hot water on, it's too hot. Uh, So it's now recommended that you turn the temperature of your water heater down some so that it's not at a scalding temperature, and it won't be high enough to, to, to scald the dust mites, but it'll drown them, and it'll work just as well. Fascinating. All right, we've got to stop here and thank our sponsors. We're going to take our halftime break. Uh, we'll be back. We're going to talk a little bit more about mold and mold health effects in this new document uh, when we get back from the second half with Dr. Jay Portnoy. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. Do more jobs faster 
with the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C-I-R-I Science.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC at IICRC.org. Healthy Buildings America 2021, Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021. Learn more at hb2021-america.org. Our industry sponsors, AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and no rush fee. Learn more at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus, particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at particlesplus.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry pros and consumers at healthyindoors.com. And our returning newest industry sponsor is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Learn more at wolfsense.com. We're back with Dr. Jay Portnoy. Dr. Portnoy, you know, last time we had you on, you gave tips for the preparation of an environmental assessment report. And I, I don't know what the question is, but I, when I read through Cliff's blog, I was, I, I was like, I've got to re-emphasize this. You, you said, use a standardized format. Include dates, photos and provide background information. A scope of recommended work, along with a list of what has and has not been done. A room-by-room evaluation, color-coded, green, yellow, red. Recommendations ranked in order of importance. Analytical results demarcated, how that work was performed, and references upon which the recommendations were based. I don't know if all our listeners know, but I want them to know your group at Children's Mercy with Kevin Kennedy and Luke Gard and the gang, they have been going out and doing these environmental assessments for years in homes of children with asthma and allergies. And it seems like at long last, the program is, you know, getting some recognition. And I see in this most recent report you sent me that um, it seems there's been some payoff in that people are seeing that these interventions work I wonder if there's anything you wanted to add to that list now. It's been nine years. <laughs> it's been nine years. Uh, things have really changed a lot. Um, and we've had to learn new ways of doing this with the COVID-19. Everybody's staying home now. Um, and I know our environment, industrial hygienists, our environmental uh, specialists are reluctant to go into people's homes now. And people are reluctant to have them visit because of the concern of spreading virus. 
So what we've been working on in the last year or so is uh, the idea of doing virtual or online home inspections. So rather than going out to the home, uh, have the family log in with a video device, a smartphone or an iPad or some tablet, something like that. Uh, and then um, we can have them take us on a tour of their house and, and just do a, a home walkthrough and inspection, have them hold us uh, the, the camera close to things that we are, have concerns about uh, and uh, talk with them about how they live and learn how their environment is without actually going to the home. If we need to do sampling, we can ask them to collect samples and then mail them to us and we can do the analytical work that way without having to step foot in the home. Um, and um, we've um, developed a protocol. We're doing a study now to try to demonstrate whether that effectiveness is the same as an in-person visit. It's kind of on hold now because in the past we were doing the in-person visits and we were trying to get set up to do the, the online visits to compare the two. Now we can do the online visits, but people don't want us to do the, the in-person visits. So we, we've got to wait until we can do both kinds of visits to really do a good, good comparison. But we're hoping to be able to document that the effectiveness of home inspections virtually is as good as doing it um, on, on the ground in person. Uh, I, I believe Kevin and, and in a previous conversation with him, we were talking about, and maybe it was someone else, but it, it seems to make sense to me, trying to zero in on um, geographical locations based on, you know, uh, the type of home built there, the age of the homes, how likely it is there are going to be environmental issues related to allergy and asthma. Have you been doing any more on that? Well, Kevin, you know, we're talking about Kevin Kennedy. Um, yes. he's, he's done a tremendous amount of work with the uh, uh, Kansas City Health Foundation. They've actually got him line itemed as a item budget on their, their annual budget now. Uh, they, they contain a database uh, of the Kansas City metropolitan area where apparently every few years they've gone around and surveyed every home in Kansas City. And they've taken pictures of it and they've graded it in terms of environmental, uh, the quality of the roof and how the yard looks and the, the windows and the doors, everything that you can look at from the outside. Um, and they do that repeatedly every few years so that we've got not only a snapshot of what the entire Kansas City housing community looks like, but we have it over time. So you can actually play a little video and see how it evolves as, as time goes on. And I, I've seen that. It's absolutely fascinating. They've geocoded each of the houses now. So rather than just being based on a, a, a zip code or a, a precinct or something like that, they've got it down to the individual house, where they're located, how they're related to each other, what the relationship is to highways, factories, other sources of pollutants. And they're able to compare that with the results of indoor inspections that we've done in, in a lot of these houses uh, to validate uh, how the outdoor informs what the indoor is. And can you use the outdoor to predict uh, problems on the in, in the indoors? And then there does seem to be some correlation between the two, although it's, it's certainly not perfect. Um, I'm curious. Um, first, I have a text question. Let me get this one. Uh, very interesting about the Purina development. Is anyone working on something similar for dogs, do you know? That was the first question I asked. The, the, the research guy, his name is Ebenezer. 
Um, he uh, started with cat because FELD1 is the major allergen. People who are allergic to cats are clearly symptomatic when they're exposed to it. The deal with dogs is that dogs have several, several allergens and they all seem to be important. There's this prostatic allergen that's produced only by male dogs. So if you're allergic to that, then getting a female dog, you wouldn't have a problem. Uh, can F1 is a major dog allergen, but there are other dog allergens as well. And so there doesn't seem to be a single dominant allergen. So in order to make this work, they would have to immunize the, uh, the hens against several different dog allergens um, and then use that in the product. I've recommended that they do that. And, and I think they're looking into doing that kind of uh, work, but uh, they wanted to see how the the cat allergen was received first because that that's clearly a much more important and, and dominant allergen than, than dog allergy. There are numerous triggers for people with asthma and, and one that we talk a lot about is mold and I think it gets a lot of attention. Do you think it gets more attention than it deserves with respect to allergy and asthma? Um, well, pro probably. Uh, par partly because I think it tends to eclipse other things that, at least in kids, are more important, such as viral infections. Um, you know, since since March, when everybody started staying home and wearing masks and not getting infected, we haven't had any asthma. Our asthma rates dropped to zero. They've stayed very close to zero through the summer and into the fall, the peak fall season, when we usually have a spike in asthma admissions. We didn't have any spike this year. Uh, and yet there was plenty of mold in the environment. There was plenty of pollen, plenty of cigarette smoke. All of the things that we think trigger asthma was still there, um, but the kids weren't getting sick. There was no asthma. So to me, that suggests that the thing that mostly drives at least episodes of asthma is viral infections. Get rid of the viruses, the asthma goes away. Of course, staying at home for a year is a pretty dramatic way of getting rid of viruses and treating asthma, but it, it's just an interesting observation, and we're writing a paper about that right now. I think yes, if you're allergic, if you're allergic to mold and you have exposure to mold, then that will clearly trigger your asthma and make it more likely that when you get a viral infection, it will make a more severe episode of asthma. So I think it's an additive type of thing. Interesting, Cliff. Do you have a follow-up? I, I do. I, I was just thinking about the follow-up on Mr. Newman's question about the dogs and so on and so forth. It would seem that uh, there's almost like a, a double whammy. They've got two out of three, FDA's Food and Drug Administration. And it would seem like uh, this specialized cat food or whatever, it's a food. And then they're messing with it, you know, by adding stuff to it. So it would seem to me that there'd be like a lot of government loopholes and stuff that they may need to go through and jump through a lot of hoops in order to market it. It's actually easier to market because it's a food. Okay. And so, and they're treating cats, they're giving it to the cats. So they needed to get approval from the uh, veterinarian people. There's the, okay. I don't know what, what organization monitors uh, treatment of animals. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the, the animal people had to give approval for it, but we're not doing anything to the humans. Humans are not being treated. So the FDA has no jurisdiction over this product. So they were able to get it approved pretty quickly without doing all of the human trials. All they had to show was that it didn't hurt the cats and they had the veterinarians do that. Um, it doesn't hurt the cats. 
it clearly reduces exposure, not to zero, but, but substantially. And more important, it reduced exposure enough that people with asthma were less symptomatic. So they were able to spend more time with their cats and they had fewer symptoms when they did that. So those Thanks are the, the studies that they have done and they can almost certainly do that with dogs and other, other maybe dust mites and maybe molds. Maybe we'll get a spray where we have this antibody that has an, uh, against molds and we'll spray it into the environment and it'll neutralize the mold allergens. It's, it's a possibility and it, you know, the, 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 the sky's the limit. You know, you, the American, you were past president of, uh, I think the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy and Immunology. And mm -hmm. they have these practice parameters and I know there's one for dust mite, and I think there's one for feathered, you know, for birds. And I, I think there there are, I don't know, you could tell me how many there are. And then you you were working on one for mold, but it, it never came about. I wonder if you want to comment on that. And if this newest report kind of seems like it almost takes the place of that. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Well, this report is not a mold specific one. We were working on a series of guidelines that were specific to particular aeroallergens. So we had one on dust mites and rodents and cockroaches and, and uh, we had one on molds that we wrote, but it was so long and complicated because mold isn't one thing. It's a thousand different species. Each one could kind of have its own practice parameter. And that's the problem with, with the mold. So it was decided rather than writing a single monster practice parameter, we would break it up into smaller documents. And so I think we had like six papers in a, in a themed issue of the Journal of Allergy that dealt with mold. And though it wasn't called a practice parameter, it served the same function. Uh, it's just such a broad and big topic that you can't cover it in a single parameter. We did a show on that Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Um, and I, I, I have to put that in the blog clip so that people can go back and look at that one as well. Um, as far as mold health effects, you've, you've looked at not just allergy and asthma, but, you know, obviously there are other things blamed on, on mold. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. what your general thoughts are. Do you think there are other types of um, reactions that people have that are not necessarily allergic reactions that cause them a lot of problems when they're living in a moldy home? Well, yeah, I think so. There, there's evidence that just living in a damp environment by itself increase your risks of having morbidity from asthma and other respiratory problems. So just a damp environment in and of itself. It's got to be damp enough to support the growth of microorganisms such as mold and bacteria and other things. So, so that, that has been clearly shown to be an, a risk factor. Uh, if you make it less damp, if you remediate it, then your risk goes down. So there's a connection there. Now, uh, whether mold is the reason why that's the case, that's the next question that has to be asked. And it's much more difficult because when you get rid of dampness, you're not just getting rid of mold. You're getting rid of dust mites. You're getting rid of bacteria. You're getting rid of lots of other things that uh, that could be involved in causing health problems. Uh, so that's not a single thing. Uh, and that, that's part of the problem with dealing with mold is that all of the interventions that deal with mold don't get rid of just mold. They get rid of other things. And so um, the studies that are looked at in, in this uh, review and also uh, in the studies that we looked at uh, had to look at interventions that got rid of mold but did not change the other things. So probably the Kirksmer study 
was done in Cleveland was the most definitive one in that respect because they did interventions that reduced mold exposure but did not change dust mites or rodents or cockroaches or any of the other aeroallergens. And they were able to show that by reducing exposure only to mold, that patients with asthma did get improvement in their symptoms. So that, that was the, the main study that's cited by pretty much every practice guideline uh, as, a, as evidence that interventions can help with mold allergy. It's also evidence that mold actually was causing the problems that uh, getting rid of it helped. And that was specific to asthma and allergy or were there other yes. symptoms as well? Well, it was, it, was, it was asthma studying, so respiratory diseases. Um, and, um, you know, these are people who had allergy to the mold. If you're not allergic to the mold, getting rid of it isn't as helpful. So, I mean, that's one of the difficulties in doing these studies is that you really want to study people who have allergy to mold. What about people who don't have allergy to mold? Can mold cause harm with them? It turns out that some of the substances produced by molds trigger an inflammatory response in the innate immune system. So even if you're not allergic to mold, you can still have inflammation from certain parts of mold that get produced into the environment, things like ergosterols and endotoxins and things like that. And so mold is a much more complicated thing than, than most people realize. I think those of us in the business know how complicated it is, but it's almost an it's a daunting task to try to tease these things apart and figure out how much each of them contributes. It really is. And one of the kind of in the indoor environmental quality world where, you know, IEPs, indoor environmental professionals are doing this type of work, they're, they're running more and more into MDs that are recommending urine tests for mycotoxins. And mm. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, the um, CDC actually re released a report in 2016 in their MMMR uh, commenting that uh, urine mycotoxin assays is a scam uh, and that they're of no use at all. Uh, it turns out that these, I, I ran my own urine and I, I had mycotoxins in my urine too, just wanting to find out and I'm not sick. Uh, it has nothing to do with illness. It turns out that normal people have mycotoxins in their urine. It comes from food that we eat. The FDA actually has a permissible amount of mycotoxins that can be in food that you eat. Uh, it's usually in grain, grain foods that butter. have mold contamination. Uh, you eat the mycotoxin, goes in and is immediately excreted by the kidneys into the urine. And the fact that you're picking it up in the urine means that the body is working well at eliminating it. So it's not causing harm. So the mere presence of mycotoxins in the urine means nothing. And yet there are practitioners who will tell patients, oh, there it is. It, mold is in you. We've got to get it out of you. They, they'll give them chelation with EDTA. They'll put them on uh, antifungal medications. They'll do all kinds of things. Of course, put them on nutritional sub supplements and, and so on. And they'll charge them a huge amount of money as well that the insurance companies won't pay for because it's not a proven uh, procedure. Uh, and I, I've seen patients who've come in with these reports demanding that I do something about it. And it, it's really hard to dissuade them of that. I basically have to just tell them that, that it's not something that I do and that they have to search elsewhere. And I'll give them a copy of the CDC report, but that, that you know, somebody who's really committed and into a belief system, evidence is not going to change their mind. What about ERMI scores? Uh, do you use ERMI, you know, PCR uh, ERMI scores 
you, I, I mean, assume you get the same thing, you know, because some MDs recommend that both as uh, background and clearance type of thing. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, for some reason that became very controversial. So there is evidence that the ERMI may be useful as a predictor for health effects of, of mold. On the other hand, there are people who have high ERMI scores who don't have any health effects. And so it's not a real, um, it's not a precision test. It's, it's a test that might give you some indication, but I'm not sure that it helps more than just going out to the home and observing for the presence of mold and uh, dampness and visible mold and moldy odor. Those things are probably just as helpful as doing this score. So, so I'm not, so our, our institution doesn't do the ERMI score. We, we tried it in the past and, and did some work with it um, to study it, but um, we, we don't do it now. It's not something we do in practice. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, let me do this. We're going to go to what we call a roundup, and we'll be back. We'll have our final questions with Dr. Jay Portnoy. Let's go back. I, I've got a text question. I'm not sure how to put this. Can concrete contribute to the proliferation of mold? I'm not sure in what in what respect? Um, any thoughts on that? What, what was the question again? Can, can what can lead to concrete? Concrete. Uh, concrete contribute to the proliferation of mold. So I guess using you know slab on grade type construction, uh, concrete. You know nowadays we're getting you know concrete walls. Um, any thoughts yeah. on that? Well, con concrete is a porous solid substance. It's a mineral. Mold can't grow on concrete per se, although if organic material gets into the concrete, the mold can grow on that organic material. The, the main reason that it's of concern on slabs is because it's porous. So water from the ground can seep through it uh, into the basement, which is usually a basement. And if you have a carpet directly on the grade, then that carpet will tend to get damp because of the water that has seeped into it. Now that's intrusion. Uh, there's also condensation. Concrete has got high thermal mass, so it tends to stay cold. And in the summertime, when warm, moist air comes into contact with the concrete, it will condense and that condensation will make the back of the carpet damp as well. So the dampness comes from the ground and from the condensation. Um, it's a, the back of the carpet is perpetually damp and that's a great place for mold to grow. Um, so that, that's why carpeting on slab is not recommended. Let me um, ask two more questions before we have to wrap this up. One is on <clears throat> people who have had both chemical exposure and mold exposure. Um, have you looked at that at all and, and, and tried to figure, you know, maybe someone who's had a, a chemical exposure, they work in, let's say, um, treatment of lumber, you know, uh, so they're, they're exposed to a lot of chemicals during their work, and then they may live in a damp home. Uh, have you looked at any synergistic effect between those two things? We, we haven't specifically. We, we only treat kids. Um, kids don't usually have a lot of chemical exposures, but, but I know that there are occupational exposures that can make your lungs inflamed. And if you also are exposed to something else that can cause inflammation, it seems clear, seems obvious to me that that would increase your risk of having problems. Um, but but that's something right the occupational folks would be able to address more effectively. You led right into my next question, because I think inflammation is somehow kind of the key that unlocks a lot of the 
the um, mysteries that we see around dampness and mold. Can you comment on how inflammation, first let's talk about what kind of symptoms can just inflammation cause in people? I mean, what does that lead to? Could it lead to things like difficulty thinking, brain fog, things like that? Uh, I guess inflammation in the brain can lead to that. In fact, some one of the symptoms associated with COVID-19 is this brain fog that people have after they've had it. It's a systemic inflammatory disease. It's not just a respiratory infection. And there's kind of a brain fog that goes on for you know weeks to months afterwards in some individuals. Um, so in the symptoms of inflammation really depends on where the inflammation is located. Uh, in the lungs, the symptoms are pretty classical, coughing, wheezing, labored breathing, um, mucus production, uh, you know, asthma basically is a sign of inflammation in the airways. That's why we treat it with anti-inflammatory medicines to reduce that and, and the patients get better. Uh, inflammation in other parts of the body can cause different symptoms. The, the brain, if it's inflamed, you can get the brain fog and other problems with cognition, inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract, you get GI symptoms. So, so it really depends on where the inflammation is and um, and uh, as to what symptoms you're going to get. What about infection? I'm curious about, in particular, sinus infections. Um, we had mm -hmm. a doctor on several years back who's just he's convinced that a lot of the people who have problems with mold actually have sinus infections as well that can lead to all kinds of issues. What are your thoughts on sinus infections with, with mold? Are they more common than we realize? or and, and if so, do they help contribute to some of the health effects that people attribute to mold exposure? Well, first of all, whenever somebody says the cause of this problem is this, I would always be skeptical because there's never a single cause of any particular problem. So sinus infection is not the cause of asthma. Uh, sinus infections are pretty common. Uh, they're part of a cold. Anytime you get a cold, you're also going to get a sinus infection. It's a sinusitis. It's called rhinosinusitis. You get inflammation in your nose. The sinuses are connected to your nose, so they're always inflamed. If I get an x-ray of somebody who has a cold, it will show sinusitis. Um, that, that's just normal. So yeah, sinusitis is very common, and it's associated with inflammation of the airways, which is associated with asthma. So yeah, I, I think so. The key, the question then is well, what's causing it? Um, and he's probably talking about bacteria and using antibiotics to treat it. But 90 plus percent of sinus infections are triggered by rhinovirus. They're, they're almost always viral infections. Antibiotics don't help sinusitis. In fact, I don't treat sinusitis with antibiotics. I haven't given antibiotic to somebody with sinusitis in over 10 years. And I, I can, and they get better anyway, because it doesn't change the natural history of the disease. The main thing with sinus is it's a closed cavity, so you need to keep it open, keep the drainage going, and reduce the inflammation, and then it'll clear up, and you don't need antibiotics. What about people with chronic, and, and he was specific to mold on this show. He, he felt like they were under-diagnosed um, because of the difficulty in uh, is he culture. talking about mold in the sinus? Like yes, mold in the sinus. Sinus. Fungal sinusitis. Yes. That's a rare condition. It, it does happen, though. And if mold does take up uh, presence in the sinuses and start to grow, then it can cause a chronic problem, which can be serious. I don't think it's underdiagnosed. I think it's just rare. Uh, okay. our, our immune system is really good at fighting off molds. 
The only molds that are likely to grow in the sinuses would be something like aspergillus that's thermophilic because it grows at body temperature, but most molds don't like to grow inside of our bodies because they grow at room temperature. Okay. And let's uh, wrap it up by just saying, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed? In it? And can we get you back to talk a little bit more about this uh, 20, a report from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee Expert Panel Working Group? Yeah, I think uh, the main lesson here is that this working group has now confirmed that environmental control is mainstream. It's no longer a, a fringe thing or something that the advocates promote. It's actually a standard recommendation now, and I see it uh, going mainstream and becoming a standard approach to managing patients with uh, respiratory illness. So good, good news for all of us. It really is. I think it confirms a lot of the work you and your group have been doing over the years, and um, certainly we followed that with, with great interest. I'm, I'm just wondering how widely uh, within the medical community, how, how many people in the medical community, are they going to all be aware of this report? Is this going to be something that's kind of only, you know, understood by and, and seen by the allergy and asthma groups uh, or a subset of that? How widely will this get out? Um, these NIH reports are generally very widely uh, uh, produced. They're, they're distributed. The NIH provides funding for education programs I think some of them are going to be delayed because of COVID-19. There just aren't meetings where people go and learn about this stuff. Um, there's also several pharmaceutical products that are uh, get good press in this as well. And I'm sure the drug companies that make those products are going to have lots of promotional uh, dinner meetings and stuff like that. So um, things like this generally are widely um, disseminated. Uh, the doctors are told about it. Uh, and so I think it's going to be get wide, wide uh, review and acceptance. And when you say NIH, is that National Institutes of Health or? Okay, because that's not yeah. on the title on this. I, mean, I want to make sure we're, uh, we're going to get this out to the, our listeners, at least, because I think it really confirms that what they've been doing for many years now is uh, something that's been, you know, uh, been validated now in the medical studies. And I think it's uh, important work that we do. And I know it's important work you and your group have done. And we really appreciate having you on. Well, thanks for inviting me. Let's make it and not make it another nine years. Let's do that. <laughs> Dr. Jay Portnoy, thanks again for joining us today on IAQ Radio Plus. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Hey, uh, our, our growing group of loyal listeners, actually, things are going really well. Our sponsors have been just fantastic. And next week, we're going to have a representative from each of our sponsors. We're going to kind of do a best of, worst of. Uh, year-end wrap-up next week. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. <laughs>